0: You're listening to the U.S. Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. Today's guest, NBA TV host and sideline reporter, Kristen Ledlow. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the U.S. Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. I'm Max Whittle, and I'm looking forward to bringing you an NBA jam-packed show ahead of the new season, which tips off. On October the 25th, not long now. Coming up, NBA TV host and the always charismatic Kristen Ledlow sits down with me to talk basketball, her career and the memories she has of covering Game 7 of the NBA Finals last season in the Cavaliers locker room. There may have been some champagne involved, just going to say it now. If you want to jump straight to the Kristen interview, head to about 16 minutes on the podcast. First from me, my top four storylines to look out for. In the 2016-17 NBA season. Number one. How will the Golden State Warriors dynamic look. With the addition of Kevin Durant. If you didn't know that Kevin Durant is now a Golden State Warrior. Where have you been? The biggest news story the NBA has seen for quite some time. LeBron James going back to Cleveland perhaps. But Kevin Durant in Golden State. That already had three legitimate superstars. I've been watching them in preseason, And it's just staggering. that. They only play about a half, the starters anyway, and then they throw in the reserves. But what the Warriors are doing this early, before we've even played a regular season game, is genuinely scary. And I know the owners, during this next talk with the new collective bargaining agreement, want to find a way to prevent this happening again, where the salary cap spiked so much that the Warriors were able to bring in KD, who's left Oklahoma. Mr. Russell Westbrook is getting all the questions in the world about... What Durant says about Golden State, what Durant says about the team ethic in Golden State, what Durant says about Stephen Curry's humility and his lack of ego. Yeah, well, he's hes not really going to win, is he, Kevin Durant? If he wins a championship, then people are going to say he is climbing on board of a bandwagon that was already successful. If he had a won in Oklahoma, he would have been lauded as a guy who was drafted for that team, Seattle, then moved to Oklahoma, and he won a title there through growth of a franchise. Even so, this is the biggest news story, and it's been the biggest news stories all summer long. Steve Kerr has said uh, previously that the players were the key reason at the pitch as to why Durant decided on them. Durant was in the Hamptons, and he listened to a lot of teams' pitches, the Spurs, the Clippers. Obviously Oklahoma wanted to bring him back. But Durant's team and Durant himself, the first question they asked the Warriors was, was towards Stephen Curry. And they asked him, why would you want me to come here if it's your team an interesting question and I'd like to know how Curry answered it but he obviously answered it in the right way the Warriors players had already been speaking Durant during that season up until that point I don't think Durant would have joined them if the Thunder had a Golden State in the conference finals I-, I mentioned the preseason nothing to judge here but Steve Kerr looks to have molded Kevin Durant into that philosophy that they have and he seems to be having a lot of fun already and I think whatever Curry said to Durant about why he wants to come here, and I, I, I'm guessing that a lot of it would have been Curry's mantra that he just wants to win championships. He's not about himself. His brand's already huge. He's a global superstar. He's probably the biggest name in the NBA right now, just ahead of LeBron James. So for Kevin Durant to come in, Curry is not concerned about you know, the fact that Durant needs to shoot the ball 20 times, that he needs the ball in his hands a lot. Curry's used to that. He's got Clay on his team. He's got Draymond Green on his team. And every night, the Warriors could have a different guy. Who's the man? And you just have the right minds on this team. And we forget about Sean Livingston. We forget about Zaza Pachulia, who they've added at centre. Yes, they've lost Harrison Barnes. They've lost lost Leonardo Barbosa. they lost some key players in there. Festus Azealy, Spates has gone as well. But they have recouped. And they've got Durant now, where... If Steve Kerr wants to sit down any one of Clay or Steph Curry or Kevin Durant, it's the same team as last season. It's staggering how much depth they've got in terms of star power. Draymond Green is the interesting one for me on this team, though. Does his temperament change as his stock rises further? Durant, Clay, and Curry, they all want 20 shots a game, like I said. They all want the ball. It's kind of like Chicago with Rajon Rondo, Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler. They all want the ball, but the Warriors seem to share it a lot better than they do. Does Durant become more of a central facilitator than Draymond Green? And how will Draymond cope with that? How will he deal with that? He is a fiery player. Very, very fiery. And we know it's his team in the locker room. But does he remain selfless, a team player? And I think the Olympics would have helped him in that respect. He didn't play as much as he wanted to, but he went there as a team man, came off the bench, played lower minutes, and it was probably a good warm up for for playing on this warriors team still expecting to be a key cog of course defensively of, as well green is key how do the warriors bounce back from the finals is the final point on this uh, golden state warriors dynamic they've got a lot to lose here they are the clear favorites and they have one of the most devastating small ball lineups in the league now we already mentioned the death line at the last two seasons when andre godalla would come in and you'd have Five guys under six foot nine, Draymond Green playing at centre. Now you've got Kevin Durant, a seven footer, the best seven foot ball handler we've ever seen in the league. Goes out to the wing, can shoot threes, can take it inside, basically unguardable. And when you add him into that small ball lineup with Green at centre or Durant at centre, you could essentially have five guys on the wing and none of them would look out of place. That's scary for me. But how do they bounce back from the finals? Do they come back? and destroy everyone? Are they concerned with that regular season record? Because in my view, they could go bigger than 73 wins. But I think after losing, ultimately, even though it was seven games and they were up 3-1 in the finals, they didn't win the championship. Every regular season game had pressure attached to it because they were going for that record. I don't think it would have hindered them in terms of injuries and freshness because I think they were fresh and Steve Kerr does a great job of rotating players. But I do think... That pressure, that toll, it took its toll in the end. I expect the Warriors to win the championship this season, though. My early prediction is already out. Number two, I think LeBron James wins back the MVP award this season. Now, my first point here is not to do with the Cavs and James, which is surprising because of the headline, but it's about the Clippers' Blake Griffin and Chris Paul. In playing together, Paul and Griffin have accidentally hindered their chances of winning an MVP award, if that makes sense. I think there's going to be a similar situation that will go down in Golden State with Curry and Durant as they try and share the huge scoring load that they'll no doubt produce. MVP voters woke up to the idea of LeBron again after what we saw in June, the most incredible finals appearance we've ever seen. He was absolutely phenomenal. MVP voters feel bad now that they had to change the story the last couple of seasons. Curry's won back-to-back trophies. I think they just got tired of LeBron winning the MVP award. They wanted something fresh and they got it with Steph. So when you look at the other candidates, I've mentioned Curry and Durant and Paul and Griffin going away from each other, not helping each other towards the MVP, which is not their ultimate goal anyway. Then you go towards James Harden in Houston, Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma. And unfairly or not, players outside the top two of a conference rarely win this award. So I think that rules them out. That leaves you with two candidates, Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James, Fantastic odds by the way if you do go to Vegas and, and put a bet on this. Kawhi Leonard to win the MVP. 10-1 to 1 odds at the moment. With Tim Duncan gone, needs to carry and, and mould that team in his style so he's got a good chance. Kawhi Leonard by the way going for his third straight defensive player of the year award. That ties for second with Dwight Howard if he does win that. Ben Wallace and Dikembe Mutombo are atop that list with four each so Kawhi's well on his way to doing that. But with Kawhi and LeBron, my two final candidates, I would say that James does it. Now, we know the argument against LeBron, the change of storyline that I've mentioned, Curry's reputation in the press, um, and this season, the Cavs will limit James before the postseason. But he won't have tardy numbers and pace himself. And I expect him, if he stays healthy, to play around 70 games. He'll put up amazing numbers, and he'll transform his team. And the same team, by the way, that won the championship last, last year. So he he definitely cares about the MVP. He definitely cares about the MVP, and I think this year he gets it back. Third on the list, are you ready for an implosion in New York? Now, I could be very wrong here, but I just do not like how Phil Jackson has constructed this team since he came into the Knicks organization. The new additions this summer to join Chris Taps, Porzingis, and Carmelo Anthony are as follows, and I'm not going to mention Sasavuricic as a key cog in New York. Derek Rose, Joakim Noah, Courtney Lee, and Brandon Jennings are the new additions. Additions that will inevitably help out the huge weight of and pressure on 21-year-old Paul Zingas. He was great last year. He's really fun to watch. I think he's going to have a better season this year. He tailed off in his rookie year. And they're going to help him. And Melo's come out and said that he thinks there's too much pressure on Paul Zingas. Anyway, to those new names. Derek Rose. He's been missing a lot of the preseason because of the civil trial over a lawsuit that alleges that he and two friends sexually assaulted a woman. It will be finished by the time the season starts, but this isn't the same Derek Rose. Ugly jumper. He's got more distraction in New York, and with what he's dealing with at the moment, I don't think that's a good thing. He's owed over 20 million in the final year of his deal. So he's on the same deal that he was on with Chicago, he's just seeing it out in New York now. And starting with that torn ACL he had during the 2011-12 season, when it's all seemed to have just gone downhill for Rose, over the past four seasons, he's missed 201 of a possible 328 games. That's more than 61%. Stop expecting the old Derek Rose to come back. People are waiting for him to be good again, or back to the level he was. He was competent last season in Chicago. He did have an okay season. But there's a reason why. Chicago let him go he's not the same player he has got baggage he wants to be the leader on the team and now he's in New York on paper four years ago or five years ago this was a fantastic team fantastic team right now I'm not sure about the Rose edition the trade meant also losing Robin Lopez so they replaced that defensive miss with Joachim Noah which who I'm a fan of and I am a fan of this this move in particular but he is more towel waver, shouter, less effective player than he was, again, like Rose three or four seasons ago. And when, you know, that was a time when Noah really developed into one of the best paint defenders in the NBA. He he brought a lot with him other than just chemistry and, and being a great teammate. I think that's going to be his primary role in New York this year. Brandon Jennings I'm more intrigued about, if I'm honest. He tore his Achilles in 2015, hence his real down year last year. He really nosedived. Um, in Detroit, but he'll come in on the same deal as Rose one year. So both of them have to try and prove themselves. Both of them want a big contract after this, so they want to play well. So that's that's an advantage for New York. Jennings scored a lot in Detroit, Milwaukee before that injury as well. And he'll be Rose's backup. Again, only 26 years of age. Jennings is a former 10th overall pick, and he cost the Knicks just $5 million. He could be an interesting one to watch out for. But these are the Knicks. I don't expect much higher than an eighth-place finish for them, and that would be an improvement. And my final storyline to look out for this NBA season, the shakeup at point guard in Utah and Indiana. Now, back in June, if you missed it, it wasn't as big as the Kevin Durant trade, but it was the big blockbuster that we saw first. A three-team trade between Indiana, Utah, and Atlanta. It saw the Pacers send point guard George Hill to Utah, while the Hawks ship starting point guard Jeff Teague to Indiana. And Atlanta received Utah's number 12 pick in the draft. Now, when the trade was done, the Hawks wanted to use that pick to re-sign Al Horford and Kent Bazemore. As we know, Al Horford is now in Boston, and that's another interesting team this season. Bazemore was an example of the crazy salary cap spike this summer. He got four years and £70 to stay in Atlanta. But anyway, I want to talk about the point guards. Utah was without Dante Exum all of last season after a knee surgery. He's back and slowly getting accustomed to game fitness. So adding veteran Hill from Indiana to split time is a huge addition, I think. It's a massive upgrade on their dire situation at point guard last season. The Jazz will miss Gordon Hayward, their best player for the first 20 or so games. He hurt his ring finger on his left hand. But when you have a top five defense, as the Utah Jazz did last season, and now they've got a point guard and a tandem at point guard, they're going to be competitive. Because when you look at the circumstances of what head coach Quinn Snyder had to deal with last year, He won 40 games with the Jazz. And that's not a great number unless you look at the amount of injuries they had that forced him to play unproven bench guys and the fact that they were 12-21 and in games within three points in the final three minutes. So they can turn that stat around, keep guys healthy. Okay, it's the Jazz. When do the Jazz do anything? Karl Malone, John Stockton still didn't do anything. I expect the Jazz to win 50 games and I expect them to be relevant in the Western Conference. Indiana's Jeff Teague, on the other hand, posted... Uh, on his Instagram and then deleted it soon after. Which, By the way, is becoming a very popular activity for professional sports people. During the summer, he revealed that he played the whole of last season with a torn patella tendon in this video. Um, soon afterwards, an MRI did not require, showed it did not require surgery, however, um, which is intriguing. Maybe that's why he deleted it. His numbers dropped off in the playoffs. George Hill's numbers were better than Jeff Teague's in the postseason last year. Can he bounce back from that? I'm really I'm really fascinated to see with Indiana. Larry Bird's hope that the Pacers will speed their play up, that this is going to be a different system without Frank Vogel. And then the team that Teague leaves, Atlanta, Dennis Schroeder, the young man. The starting keys are with you as Dwight Howard joins the Alf Horford-Less Hawks. It's been a crazy NBA season. I know I said I was going to do four points, but I want to throw in quickly, very quickly, the fifth. LaMarcus Aldridge and Spurs, that's, by the way, very interesting to keep an eye on because they brought in Pau Gasol to replace Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan's retired and the Aldridge experiment hasn't quite worked. He's pretty far away from Kawhi Lennon in terms of age. If the Spurs don't start well, and you expect them to, because why wouldn't they with Greg Popovich, but if you see the Spurs struggle early on, Look for the Spurs to listen to offers for Marcus Aldridge. While Aldridge's stock is high, his value's not going to be any higher than it is right now in his career because he's not getting any younger. The Spurs can listen to offers, try and get some picks back, and build a younger team around what is Kawhi Leonard's age right now. 23, 24, 25, that kind of age where they're going to be young and going into a new era. They have to either get over the hump from Duncan quickly with this team or improve dramatically through trades, and Aldridge is their big... Trade chip. There you have it, my four, well five now storylines. A quick introduction as we get to NBA TV's Kristen Ledlow. Kristen is a sports anchor who currently hosts NBA Inside Stuff with Grant Hill on NBA TV. She's also a sideline reporter. She's covered college sports and has even gone up against Shaquille O'Neal in a free throw contest. Find out how she got on and more with the woman who's interviewed Stephen Curry, LeBron James, all the big names. Let's get to it. Well, it's always nice uh, when you can sit down with Kristen Ledlow Uh, (laughs) in in London.
1: Yeah, no, I have never been here before, so I've been so excited, even just riding around in the cab on the way here, I didn't realize that everything was as close as it is. I'm looking out the window like, that is Buckingham Palace, and that is Big Ben. I mean, it's been an incredible thing so far, and I've been here for all of two hours.
0: (laughs) We should probably introduce you, the host of NBA Inside Stuff on NBA TV. It's been quite a career so far. You tweeted, I I was was sneakily looking on your Twitter earlier, (laughs) and you said, it's lovely to meet a woman, there's your driver here today, it's lovely to meet a woman working in sport, it's a rarity here, and I think it's just brilliant, now let's start there. How tough is this industry for a woman?
1: Yeah, you know, first of all, it was really special to me to get into the car after <laughs> such a long plane ride through the night from Atlanta. And the first thing that he said was that. That was such a cool thing for the driver to just turn around and say that to me, that it's just brilliant. Um, because <laughs> I have a lot of close friends, actually my closest Friends are the women in this business, and so it's a really, really um, cool thing to see that acknowledged on just an international scale. But um, it comes with its own set of challenges, I think, like any other job does. Um, It's it's competitive both inside and out. It is um, exhausting. It is uh, it requires a great deal of thick skin, (laughs) Um, and you know. But it's it's also really a special time to be a woman in sports. It's the first time that, I mean, when I was a little kid, I, there was no looking up and looking around and thinking, maybe I could coach in the NBA someday, or maybe I could call an NBA game. Or and Those are actual realistic possibilities for girls now. So for all of its challenges and for everything that comes with it that they don't exactly tell you about when you're majoring in broadcasting college, it is a very special time, I think, to be a woman in this
0: business. Did you ever consider coaching, uh, sorry, uh, covering women's sports.
1: Yeah, well, so I cover the WNBA with NBA TV, and I cover, um, you know, all summer long when we have uh, those women's games going on, and also um, I covered Team USA's women's team uh, this summer, which was incredible. Great. I mean, just the chance to be around some of those women that I have looked up to for longer than I would admit to them, because then it makes them feel old, <laughs> um, but the I mean, women like Sue Bird and Tamika Catchings and Diana Taurasi, like, I've been watching them since I was a kid, and so getting a chance to act be around them this summer as they were preparing for yet another gold medal. I mean, the longest running, you know, Olympic gold medal basketball streak, you know, it is incredible. But getting a chance to be around them every single day was phenomenal. Um, getting a chance to cover our women's game, uh, even on a, on a limited basis, uh, has, has taught me so much, not just about the game, but about the women who are striving to, to, to make it so great. Um, but I would love to do more. Mm-hmm. You know, I would love to see not, not not and not just me. I not just I don't just want to be out there doing more. I would love to see our national networks covering and celebrating these women more than
0: we do. You put me onto women's basketball here, Gina oriyama the head coach. Yes, he's won eleven NCAA Division One championships, three gold medals now. Is he spoken in the same way that Phil Jackson, Red Allback are? Or do you think because he's coaching women, he's not put in that? On no,
1: that. he's he is well-respected in the basketball family. Um, I know that even actually just a couple of weeks ago, I was having dinner with Charles Barkley, and Charles was talking to... As you do. Yeah, look at you. <laughs> no, he's, he's such a dear friend of mine, and so we try and catch up as often as we can. He doesn't live in Atlanta, but we went to dinner a couple of uh, weeks ago, and, and he was talking to a friend of his that he ran into in the restaurant, and he said, you know, one of my best friends, is one of the greatest coaches to have ever lived, and he's kind of talking about him, and I didn't know who he was talking about at first, and then he mentioned that it was Gino. So, yeah, he's well-respected among basketball circles, and I think when it's all said and done, he will be in that conversation of the greatest to ever coach this game. Simply because he's coaching women doesn't change the fact that he is one of the greatest basketball minds to currently work in the game.
0: Absolutely. I just think sometimes the perception of these things yeah. can twist. I mean, obviously we know how great the achievements he's – He's created there, and what he's done for the programs. But I still think there is a perception that because it's women's basketball, but that's unfair,
1: right? And what's funny is, you know, you hear the criticism like, "Oh, well, is is it bad for basketball that UConn is as good as they are? Is Mm -hmm. is he bad for women's basketball that he is as dominant as he is, and that his programs are as dominant as they are?" But you don't hear that same kind of criticism for the Golden State Warriors when they're winning 73 games in a season. You don't hear that same kind of cr- criticism for the University of Alabama American football team. I just realized that we are in London, so not everybody is going to understand that reference, but you don't hear that same criticism for other teams that are winning and dominating at a high level for a consistent amount of time, but the fact that they earn that criticism is so is so silly to me. It's not bad for the game. It for the very first time, there are girls who are watching who are looking up and thinking like there there are legitimate basketball possibilities for me beyond just Playing in high school or going on to coach in high school, which again are very credible and very incredible uh, things to go on to do. But there's there there are bigger dreams now. You know, there's an actual opportunity to go be part of something that is dominant, to go be part of something that's recognized on a national, and now you're helping inform me on an international scale, and and then to go on and become a Doris Burke, a Becky Hammond, a Nancy Lieberman who has you know great say in the basketball industry regardless of gender, and so. I think it's an incredible thing it is silly any criticism that is that 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 Gino Ariema earns simply because he's coaching women and that you of earn simply because they're beating everybody else who tries
0: what can you tell me about Becky Hammond so because we're going to talk about you don't worry about that <laughs> but Becky Hammond it's it's a meteoric rise and people people know her name that that I think for me that's important in the NBA, in an NBA circle So what can you tell us about her?
1: Well, we don't have to talk about me ever. I would rather go on to talk about Becky for the rest of this interview. Um, She is as wonderful a woman as I have had the chance to be around. She is as brilliant a basketball mind as I think any player or coach has the opportunity to be around. And I think that that speaks for itself simply because the Spurs organization is not one that's going to to, to look for some publicity stunt. They're not one that's going to do some shtick. kind of – they are not. an organization that's going to hire a woman simply so that they can be the first NBA team that hired a woman. Greg Popovich made it very clear. I wasn't looking to make history hiring the first woman to an NBA coaching staff. I was looking for the best coach. And she was it. And, and so because they made that step, you know, because they took that step, because they made that leap, there are other teams now that are having an opportunity to do so. That Not that the opportunity wasn't there before, but now it's going to become more commonplace for women to be considered in these positions. You know, Nancy Lieberman is a member of the Sacramento Kings coaching staff. Um, mm-hmm. a, a, a friend of mine, Lindsay Harding, has worked on the summer league staff with the Toronto Raptors. So it's going to become more commonplace for you know, regardless of gender for brilliant basketball minds to be able to step into these positions. And for a very long time, men have coached, Women's teams yep. on every level. Um, so the the criticism that perhaps a woman can't step into these places and and coach these men is again silly. And one of the things that I've talked to um, I've actually talked to both both Coach Hammond and and Coach Lieberman about this. Uh, one of the things that Nancy told me actually last summer, as she was stepping into coaching that Sacramento Kings summer league team out in Las Vegas, she said, you know, the criticism is that perhaps these grown men won't listen to a woman. Perhaps these These professional athletes are not going to take me seriously. She was like, but a lot of these grown men, at least a lot of the ones on my team, grew up with just a mother in their home. And they're a lot more likely to listen to a woman than they are going to listen to a man who's screaming in their faces, you know? And so something like that, um, I think even just that dynamic is a really special one to watch the relationships that have formed between Nancy and her her guys and between Becky and her guys as well. The The respect level is so great from every young man that I've talked to on those teams. Young man, and I mean, if you guys you talking about the Spurs, old man also. Most of them are older than I am. But you, know, um, but, you know, the respect level is so great for these women. And because they are as brilliant as they are in, in the game of basketball and because they bring just a, a unique flavor that only a woman can, I think that the men have responded to them in a really special way.
0: Um, also, what a great organization to go into because you did have Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manny Ginobili, these kind of characters in the league. Who will accept this challenge and right. it's a fresh face uh, on that point then you've done sideline reporting what's the challenge there in terms of not not first of all the story you're trying to get because it's a, it's done in quick tidbits but more there's these men on the sideline right and it's it can be challenging. So what's that like as an experience?
1: Yeah, it can be absolutely. Um and I think I didn't realize how challenging it was until actually stepping into that role because like you said it is just tidbits. You know, when you watch a TNT game that I'm a part of, you're only going to hear 40 seconds from me at a time and oftentimes it's either an injury update or or some sort of breaking news that may happen in or around the organization, but that's kind of it. So my job um throughout the day is less about uh, preparing statistically the way that guys like Marv Albert or Kevin Harlan may do so in order to contribute to the broadcast my job is to stay on top of the stories surrounding the franchises that the game concerns so a lot of times it's um, it's being in touch with their PR staff or with their with their um, strength training staff or you know their physical trainer whatever it is whatever the story is Finding it's yes it's staying on top of those uh, latest and breaking news stories um, and then sometimes there's just just not that, but fortunately getting a chance to host Inside Stuff, I, I know a lot about these guys, and I know a lot about their stories, and we've spent a lot of time together, so I'm able, I think, to contribute to the broadcast in other ways to, to get a chance to relate to the fans who they are, um, not just, you know, the, the guy that you're watching playing on the court right there in front of you, but, but who they actually are, and I think that's a special thing as well, so I try and add as much as I can.
0: So you went to college in Florida. Yes. You played sports. Was it basketball, track?
1: Basketball and volleyball Volleyball. in college. Yeah, I ran track also in high school. That is why I'm 28 and my knees don't work anymore. Um, All of that. We got got your
0: age. We got your (laughs) age as well. This is brilliant. We know you dinner with Charles Barkley regularly. Right. Yeah. Okay. It
1: had actually never crossed my mind um, that I wanted to play professional sports I've wanted to be a sports broadcaster from the time that I was very young from the from the really the last that I can remember um when I was little even prior to the WNBA forming as a league because we're in our 20th season now of the WNBA I remember saying and writing on things um that I wanted to be the first ever girl to play in the NBA <laughs> that's what I wrote as a little girl like um, when I was in fourth or fifth grade when you had to be the what I want to be when I grow up, you know, kind of project. I dressed up like Michael Jordan and came to class. Reaction with my was. Hair, pull, with my hair pulled up into my Chicago Bulls hat and did my project on MJ. Um, so so that what it was and has been always my first love. And it was actually not a thought of mine that I wanted to play beyond really even high school. I kind of fell into playing in college. Um, I did not plan to focus on my playing of the game in college, I planned to focus on a broadcasting career. Uh, So I went into college uh, very much prepared for that to be my focus. I actually, even when I would play in the women's games starting in my freshman year, would go immediately to the showers, shower off, come out in wet hair and broadcast for the men's games that started, you know, 30 minutes after ours. Um, Because that was what I wanted to do more than anything. And then worked for just our local access, you know, channel all throughout the season covering the, the baseball, team as well and and just doing as much as I could um to just solidify myself as as a sports broadcaster that was what I wanted to do so it never really crossed my mind that okay where I'm at now is kind of a a failed version of a of a, you know a, what could have been a professional basketball career because what I wanted to do was to cover the game um you know on whatever scale that may have been because I remember my senior year in college my uh my advisor sitting me down and saying you know the the odds of making it on a national level mm-hmm. as a sports broadcaster as a as a woman you know in 2010 it was at the time um he said "are are just not high so I am going to tell you to do this only if you are okay covering high school football for your local news channel for the rest of your career and I remember leaving and thinking like well, okay, well, that's something to think about, and I thought about it for a couple of days, and I went back in there and said, yes, I wanted my major to be broadcast simply because if that was all that I got to do, if that was all that my career was, which, again, is a very honorable career because I know a lot of the men who are covering, um, you know, men and women who are covering our, uh, you know, our local high school football teams because I did it, you know, And, and if that was, was where it started and finished for me, that was going to be enough. So for me, it never crossed my mind that, oh, this was a plan B or a backup to what could have been. This is what I always wanted to do.
0: And did you always want to shoot free throws with Shaq? Yes.
1: Yeah, if, if you can call I, that free
0: throw from <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, but you got to do that on the TNT set. And that, yes. What? What? Tell us that story.
1: Okay, so it was my first week working with Turner Sports, which it's already intimidating to walk into a room of Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal and Kenny the Jet Smith and Ernie <laughs> Johnson. It is already intimidating to walk into that room. But to be told, I believe it was probably 48 hours in advance. So we want to introduce you as the host of Inside Stuff and we're going to have you go on TNT Inside the NBA and challenge Shaq to a free throw contest. <laughs> it's like, how did my life get here? <laughs> like, how did this happen? You were
0: supposed to be a high school reporter. Uh,
1: right. Well, th- I mean, I, I, but it's, it was such a surreal moment, and and that night was so special to me, even though, as it is well noted, I did lose that free throw competition. How do you
0: lose against Shaq? Yeah. Um... You should have left the heels on. Maybe that was the problem.
1: I thought that also afterwards, because I don't think it was the nerves, because I wasn't really nervous. Like it was, Because people have asked, like, oh, well, of course, she was probably just nervous. No, because, I i mean, we're only in there. It's only, like, seven or eight people standing in there. You know, like, you don't think about, oh, there's 11 million people at home watching. You don't think about that part. You just think about who's standing in there. There was nobody in there. Um... I don't know what I can blame it on. I'd like to blame it on actually. Kenny was yelling in my right ear. I, I think I'd like to blame it mainly on Kenny. Do you, want, I, do,
0: you want some, do you want some advice? Yes. Next time, go up against Mr. Drummond. Do that, and you'll yeah, win. Fair.
1: Well, okay. But I got my revenge. I went down to Shaq's house in Orlando, and we shot threes, and I beat him in that. So I felt like that was a pretty, pretty solid makeup.
0: Okay, so you talked about some cool interviews you've done. What's the yeah. worst interview you can remember doing?
1: The worst, not this one, I promise. No, um, let's see, the worst interview I can remember doing. Or who's
0: the one you struggle with? Because we've all been there in the locker room, and this guy just does not give you anything, but you have to, and you have to be quick then to think about the next question, because you're expecting someone to answer it for you.
1: Right, it. am I, okay, so instead of going with worst interview, can I, most, challenging, most challenging, I think interview. is the best way to put this, because, be friendly. you know, it. right, absolutely, because these guys, you know, if they end up hearing this, then they're not. <laughs> going to ever be on inside stuff again, and I don't need that. Um, Coach Pop is definitely oh. challenging.
0: Even Not even just any time?
1: Any time, and I, I think that... I think the... Ner- okay, so, no, I was not nervous to shoot free throws against Shaq on TNT. I was and still am nervous to interview Coach Pop on TNT, simply because you, it's it's difficult to... I mean, it's difficult to come immediately back with a, a question that appears to be an intellectual one if he comes back at you with a one-word answer. And so then you start to overthink it. And so I actually asked him this season when we had a second by ourselves before any cameras are rolling, like, will you just tell me what a not-stupid question would be? <laughs> Will you just give me some insight? And he actually did give me a couple of tips, which I am not going to reveal now, simply because I don't want anyone else to have them. Okay. Uh, I want I want that to be my information alone. Um, but no, he did sit there and kind of laugh, and he because he 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 asked me, "Are you going to ask me any stupid questions?" And I was like, "Will you please just tell me what <laughs> what you consider a stupid question?" So we have talked about it. We have we have definitely gone over that together. Um, He's so
0: good. He's so funny at half time though I know But but between quarters those interviews I still don't quite understand how and why you do it in the States we don't do that sort of thing here and you won't you'll never really get anything out of them but he makes it so much so funny.
1: Well, and it is difficult simply because those coaches and many of them have told me they don't want to do that. You know, it's between mm-hmm. quarters, they only have a couple of minutes and then they got to spend a minute and a half of it with me talking about their game strategy and obviously they're not going to go on national television and tell me what it is. So, it definitely is a difficult moment simply because even if they're not going to give you the coach pop one word answer, they still don't want to give you too much. So those, I think, are are actually the most challenging interviews, simply to come up with something that appears to be bright enough to (laughs) convince them that you've been paying attention to this game, but also not something that makes them
0: feel like their time has been wasted. You know who the challenge as well? Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach.
1: I've seen. I've never interviewed him, but I, yeah. mm -hmm.
0: I think post-game, because Popovich shut down that one reporter last year. I think it was in the postseason. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. That's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah. So where were you when the Cavs won the NBA title?
1: I was at Oracle Arena. Of course you were. And then minutes later, I was in the Cavaliers' locker room getting doused from head to toe in champagne.
0: What did you... Okay, let's go with the reactions for a few events. Yeah, so so what was crazy? Okay, go go with your story first. All right, so so
1: we sit at Oracle Arena. Our entire network, uh, we sit together in one of those back rooms underneath, so you can hear everything that's going on at Oracle. But we have the screens, and we're watching it kind of like we're watching it on TV. But you can hear the actual live fan reaction happening. So we sit in a room much like the one you and I are in right now. I mean, there are twenty of us all piled onto like three different couches, and I was sitting next to Isaiah Thomas. Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas, not Boston Celtics point guard Isaiah Thomas, and he and I were the only two that from the get-go said the Cavaliers were going to win this thing. (laughs) I don't know why I thought that they were going to, simply because LeBron somehow inspires an irrational confidence in anybody that starts to believe in him, and Isaiah is just absolutely sold on Kyrie. So he and I were sitting there during Game 7 and just still convinced the Cavaliers are going to do this thing, and everybody was I i mean. Everybody was sold on the Warriors winning it. From the very beginning, Kenny was in our green room, and he's going to get mad at me telling this story, saying, y'all don't have to book anybody else's flights. You are not coming back to Oakland. This thing is over in four. It's a sweep. You're not coming back. This thing's going to be done in Cleveland in game four. So, you know, that was what kind of the mood was surrounding those two teams after those first few games. So Isaiah and I are sitting there next to each other on the couch. As it's getting closer to time, we have, like, our arms linked, and we're, like, holding hands because we couldn't. Couldn't believe that it. it was down to the last couple of minutes with the two best teams on the planet, the two best players on the planet going head to head. It was happening right in front of us. Like, you just cannot write a better ending to this thing. So, you sit there and you watch it. I mean, the the, the chase down block. Kyrie shot, which again, going back to what I said about LeBron inspiring just an irrational confidence, there's something about that guy that just makes you believe whatever it is that he says. So, Kyrie, the fact that he, in just a couple of seasons, has blossomed into one of the league's best point guards, mm-hmm. I attribute it greatly to the confidence that LeBron has inspired him. Regardless, that's a whole other that's a whole other thing I could get into. But the fact that he stepped up and he I mean he took that shot like he didn't even think twice about he whether or down. not it was gonna go in. He knew that thing yeah. was gonna go in. So to watch the way that it unfolded and ended and Isaiah looked at me as soon as it did and he goes, they did it. And and tears started coming out of my eyes. I couldn't even believe what I was watching. I mean, because then you watch LeBron just just, just crumble to the floor and he's sobbing. And the same thing with Kyrie and Kevin and Tristan and JR. And you're just watching it happen. And and my makeup artist runs over to me and she goes, don't cry on fresh makeup. Do not, like, I just made you look perfect. Don't do this.
0: Is she an NBA fan she, or is yeah, she more concerned no, with the makeup? More
1: concerned with the makeup, absolutely. Okay. But my job was to cover the Cavaliers and we had David Aldridge, uh, now the Hall of Fame journalist David Aldridge, covering the the Warriors. So both of us knew that our job was to, you know, I, I was going to be with the Cavaliers regardless, he was going to be with the Warriors regardless, as we had been all series long, and whoever had the winning team was going to sit down with the winning coach. So she was like, don't cry on fresh makeup because as soon as the Cavs won, that means I'm going to sit down with Teron Liu. Like, get ready because you're about to be on television, national television with the winning coach of this NBA championship. And as soon as I walk into the locker room, they douse me head to toe in champagne. So much for the fresh makeup. I'm sitting there with Ty Liu afterwards, like an hour afterward, where we're wearing matching t-shirts. Mine's inside out, so I look like this unbiased journalist. I have hair that's like completely stiff because of champagne makeup dripping down everywhere, and they're like, you know what, just do the interview because this is this moment. So that is where I was when the Cavaliers won it all.
0: So Las Vegas has set the Warriors' win total at 66.5 this season. Really? Um, If I had to give you over-under 72... With with the Warriors taking a knife to parity, it seems, this summer you go under. Oh,
1: yeah, under 72. I don't think that we're going to see what we saw out of the Warriors last season because that chemistry was built over a handful of seasons, and I think somebody's going to have to sacrifice statistically for this thing to work. I think that a year from now we might be sitting here talking about the NBA champion Golden State Warriors. That's a very realistic possibility, but I don't think that out of the gate they're going to be able to have as nearly a flawless season as they did last year.
0: And just real quick, who haven't you interviewed yet that you want to?
1: Paul Pierce bucket list he is my all-time favorite my trash talk inspiration my 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 i mean he he has been my everything since high school i told him that at the NBA finals this year so my hope is to get him on inside
0: stuff this season well have fun in london thank you so much thank
1: you you. it was awesome it was so good to meet you thanks for asking me all the fun stuff
0: how great is kristen ledlow funny woman very charismatic very charming she was a great listen there over here in london And do not forget, there's NBA action live in the capital this season. The Denver Nuggets will host the Indiana Pacers at the O2 on January the 12th, 2017, just a couple months away. Tickets for NBA Global Games London 2017 go on sale October 28th, just three days after the opening tip of the season. What did I learn today? I learned that Kristen Ledlow is dear friends with Charles Barkley and has dinner with him. And that I am extremely jealous about that fact. We can't have it all, but we can have another podcast next week, and it's a real big one. Two guests on the show next week. One, a star from the Jacksonville Jaguars will join me, and one of my favorite NFL writers of all time, Don Banks, formerly of Sports Illustrated, and now NFL.com will also be on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Please follow the U.S. Sports Podcast with Max Whittle on Audioboom and subscribe on iTunes. Have a great week.